Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. It's time for the Life Writing Podcast with your hosts, authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve Dew. All about creating the project of your dreams while living a balanced artist life. Be the hero or heroine of your own story. Sponsored by LifeWritingPremium.com. Get ready to write for your life. Welcome to the Life Writing Podcast, where married authors and screenwriters, Stephen Barnes and Tanana Do talk about writing during stressful times, breaking into Hollywood, and balancing life. Every week, we'll share more tips on how to build a better life while you work on your dream projects. Even if it's only at the rate of one sentence a day, life writing is the application of the tools of writing to life and the tools of life to your writing. Yay! Here we are. Calm down, everybody. Calm down. Calm down. They're rowdy. They're rowdy today. They, they must know this is a very special podcast. Uh, I have one of my oldest friends on the podcast today from when we were both at students at Northwestern University studying writing, Robert Vermosi. I'll tell you more about him in a little while. He's going to help us continue our conversation about AI and also lots of other just great cool stuff about writing. But before we do that, Steve, did you want to, I don't know, did you want to talk about what's going on? Absolutely. Yay! So it's just before Comic-Con. By the time this comes out, we you will already have been to Comic-Con. Yeah, wearing cat whiskers, I suspect. It's, it's <laughs> just, I'm not even sure why I agreed to do that, other than just kind of an excuse to go to Comic-Con. Probably we'll see some people while I'm down there. Uh, yes, you're uh, dropping me off at a, a boat. Right. I won't go into details, but I will yeah. be relaxing on the yeah. ocean, on the water, while you are dealing with uh, Comic Con. But hey, that's fine. Yeah. Probably I might be able to see Nikki while I'm down there. That uh, and I would definitely see some friends. And it's not the kind of panel where I'll have an opportunity to. Uh, it's the kind of panel where I will look for some way to entertain myself while I'm yes. there. I, I used to do that a lot at science fiction conventions. But I just got back from a convention from from Diversicon in Minneapolis. Yeah, in Minneapolis. Um, yes. As opposed to Indianapolis or Annapolis. Uh, <laughs> I kind of wonder what that suffix means. But city. It's been, I guess it's been fairly busy since the last, since our last show. I'm digging more deeply into the Star Wars novel and I'm feeling like I'm getting down to uh, the, the short strokes, the place at which 
all of the basic plot elements are there. All the most important scenes are there. And now I'm adding texture to the script. It's, it's sort of like if there's a character who is engaged in a particular financial arena, I have to make sure that I understand the finances and the production and, and everything that's going on with that and ask myself, are any scenes suggested by following the, the construct of of uh, commerce within this within this world, you know, you have to be, you have to concern yourself with things like commerce or reproduction or communication or you know basic survival things, and you you you, you go through those things and kind of say, you know, am I suggesting how all of this stuff fits together just in terms of world building? If so, I may interject, yeah. this is something that sometimes you do not see with less experienced writers. I say this having taught creative writing for many many years. The world, the commerce, like how are people making a living? What is the exchange of goods and services? It, you, you know, a nice, pretty world or or a terrible world is great, but there are also life concerns going on within that world. Yeah, and I think that there are, you know, within the production or refinement of a product or the identification of of the market for it, you know, how does that market find out about the product? Those things, you know, quite often artists who are kind of pure artists aren't necessarily familiar with what I would consider to be sort of like the adult aspects of a world. You know, mm. they, they they stick with the how does it feel, you know, and I want people to do these things and these images would be fun or these emotional moments would be fun. But without a world to back those things up, the you're likely to make some real mistakes you know if, if you don't put the time in to think about that you, you, you even even a bugs bunny cartoon has an internal cartoon physics a cartoon logic there are certain things that are true you know if you run off a cliff you can keep running as long as you don't look down you know and there's <laughs> commerce even in the peanuts because lemonade is still five cents yeah exactly you know there is that sense we don't know how their parents make a living <laughs> but I think have the sense that that world of very wise children exists parallel to our world, Peanuts. And so, you know, Schultz never really made a mistake about the levels of reality. You know, Snoopy can break these levels of reality. These characters cannot. So those are the kinds of things that I'm looking at right now. And that's a good place to be because it suggests that, that by following what my story instinct wanted to do and my understanding of human beings then creating a, a world of aliens and droids you know that is on the edge of the empire or whatever it is i don't want to go too deeply into it um it, on one sense that the edge of the empire enables me to tell a story that is relatively isolated from the rest of the politics that are going on i don't want to read a dozen books to write one book but i do have i do have to respect the implications of the world you know what is it that Lucas created? What is it that Disney is doing now? And most importantly, why do people read these? What is it that they want from them? What is it that, that touched people so deeply? There's a level of, you know, I have to touch the myth. Yes, you do. You, you and, have to give the fans. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I, I just wanted to just tell you, you have to give the fans what they want. But at the same time, you're putting that Stephen Barnes stank on it. Well, it's what they want. I want what they want to be congruent with what they need. Because uh -huh. 
they think they want is lightsabers. What they really want is to touch the myth, Mm -hmm. is to feel where their hearts connect with a world that has, or at least I need to have a theory about it. So my theory is that the movie Star Wars works largely because of one moment. I mean, it's not that there aren't wonderful, you know, moments all through it, but the the original movie, A New Hope, I think works best because of one moment where where Obi-Wan Kenobi tells Luke Skywalker in the trench where it's impossible to get the shot and all of his people have been killed and and the, and the, the rebels are about to be blown up, all that stuff. And he says, trust your feelings. Trust your feelings. That's it. All the future shock. In other words, the human heart still matters because the force, you know, they they set up a a mythology that justifies that the force flows through your heart, you know, you know, through your feelings. It connects you to the universe. But it also it also I think that that was very comforting to people who were starting to deal with future shock. What, Mm. What is this all about? What is society about? Why are things moving this way? Why is the world of my childhood not? what I'm experiencing now, whatever all that stuff is, if you can tell people that their feelings still matter, they can sort through all the stuff that is challenging their intellect, but their feelings still matter. If you can do that and pull that off, I think you've given them a touch of something that we need as, as human beings, that sense that, that we matter, you know, in, in, a, in a vast, cold, incredibly complicated universe that there is some value there. And I think that if I keep my my attention on that, as I'm working on the book, then I can find ways to express that and explore that. So that's kind of where I am. How about you? That's beautifully put. Well, I mean, I don't even know how to follow up on all that. Actually, I did, I did it. I did a taping yesterday. I can't say what it was for. And no, it was not strike breaking. I had to look it up to be sure that I wasn't crossing a picket line either for the WGA or for SAG-AFTRA or whoever else is on strike right now. But it took all day, like a lot of tapings, although they did doll me up really nicely with the makeup artist. So I got some really, really good pictures out of it. And like glow up. Total glow up. And I wish I could say more. I'm not going to, though. I always sign documents saying that I'm not supposed to talk about stuff. So I will adhere to that rule. But I was kind of worn out from that yesterday. This is something I'm noticing. And one of the reasons I did not sign up for a Comic-Con panel is because I'm really trying to be careful with the number of public-facing events I do in a week. I just have noticed the energy drag as much as, you know, I like being around people once I'm around people. I don't like the idea of being around people, but once I'm around people, I enjoy it. And I think that that energy that I, I exude and, and feel like I need to present to people has a toll. So I was kind yes, of low, low key yesterday. Especially if the people need your energy. Yeah. I, I was recently in a situation, and you know what I'm talking about, that was virtually a hospice mm-hmm. and I had to be very careful because in a situation like that, my, my natural urge is to try to serve people. Yeah. It is that you can do that, but you can't do it from a, a finite source. You can't do it from your ego or it, it will absolutely drain you. Um, mm. and I, I, I felt that the next day and I realized that I'd been knocked off center a little bit because I was feeling just a little bit of grief to see people who I've known who are not doing well. It's hard. It it's is. so it's, hard. It's very hard. But, you know, if you're going to 
survive in the world, one of the things that you have to learn how to deal with is grief and fear. You know, that you have to learn how to how to find joy in spite of those things, or you will back away from helping people. Yes. And I just want to send out some energy. I'm going to keep it vague, but I have an extended family member who just got a cancer diagnosis. And that's been very much in my mind. Want to send out good thoughts to my family in that regard and just let you all maybe send out some good thoughts too. But I'm very excited, as I know you are, to bring on our guest. Do you agree? This will be a good time. It's not often. I get to have such a good friend on the podcast. And Robert from OC is someone I have known pretty much my whole adult life. We both went to Northwestern University. We lived in the same dorm. And pretty much we attended that norm more so than the college, the whole university, because that's where uh, all of us spent almost all of our time. But since that time, it's been so interesting to watch his development. He has two podcasts. He's the He does The Hacker Mind and Error Code. He's a senior security analyst and certified information system security professional. That sounds so fancy. The author or and co-author, the author of When Gadgets Betray Us, which came out in 2011, and co-author of The Art of Invisibility in 2017, which he co-authored with hacker Kevin Mitnick. And he's also, like us, married to another author, Lori Bauck. And I want to note, because we will be talking a little bit about AI, picking up on our previous podcast, Rob published a short story in 1994 called With or Without You. And he's probably better to, to talk about the story, but it really was something looking into the future that has pretty much started to come to pass. So I'm so excited to bring on the podcast, my dear friend, a writer, and someone helping us keep safe in all of this madness with the internet, Robert Famosi. Hey, Rob. Hey, thank you, T, uh, Tanana Reeve, and uh, Steve. You know what? You are one of the few people who can call me T. I'm always like editing out when Steve accidentally calls me T because I don't want the whole world to think they can call me T. That's a friend and family name, y'all. But you, you are a friend. (laughs) You were calling me T long before I met Steve. So I'll allow it. Just this one podcast, both of y'all can call me T. How about that? <laughs> I'm going to call you Tanana Reeve just to oh, stay okay. professional. Just, just and... to spite you. <laughs> yeah, just to spite you. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay, that's fine. So happy to have you on. I, I just, I don't even know where to begin with you, except I do want the audience to know I have many, many, many times made reference to a writer Uh, And when I teach, I've done it on the podcast, I talk about the importance of a writing community. And I use the example of how you were that first honest reader, what they call beta readers now, but that first honest reader who could tell me the truth and mark the hell out of a manuscript, which was called Amusement, which turned out yet to be my first professional sale, although it never got published at that time, not till many years later, the magazine went out of business, but you were the one who kicked me into professional shape. And I just, again, want to thank you for that. Just, just, you were the first person to mention Octavia Butler's name to me. So let, let me ask you a question, Rob. Yeah. Uh, when you remember that, that document, that first story, it, can you, can you remember the things that you saw that still needed to be worked on in terms of how Tanonari's work has developed over the well, years? I think you, it, to be useful to for people to understand where 
you know, not where she began, but an early stage in her development as, as viewed by you. What did you see there? But you know that was 75 years ago, Heidi. At least. So prior to Amusement, I had seen The Other Side. Right. Which was a short story that she wrote at Northwestern. And I was in the radio TV film department. Our dorm that she referred to had a basement that was called a million dollar basement because we had access to video, audio, et cetera, et cetera. And so I mounted a bunch of my friends and said, we're going to produce this into a video, which we did. So True. really, my first short story of Tanana Reeves was The Other Side. And, and that just, was my first adaptation. And and I heard in the dialogue, actual dialogue. It, it, it struck me that it was authentic. It was real. It was a very compelling story. So flash forward then, I guess, to Amusement, which was years after we graduated yeah. in college. Yeah. You sent me the manuscript and I looked at it. I remember it. There was a, a scene in a limo. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, I and in particular, I thought the dialogue was off because I know your dialogue. And so <laughs> I, I do remember asking for some tweaks to that. But I think structurally, it, it was okay. It was, it sold to literary barbecue. If I Oh, my God, you remember that? <laughs> and I, I remember telling you that I was more comfortable with genre work than I was with literary work. We went in different paths at Northwestern. You got into the writing program. I did not. Mm. And in part because the person there said I was not literary enough. Mm, I was that. genre and a hack, more or less. And uh. it was just a different thing. So when I look at literature, i.e., you know, literary publications, I, I tend to still view them differently than I would other publications, which is probably not fair. A story is a story is a story. You know, oh, we could go on and on about that, about genre bias and higher education. It, it still exists. It's very unfortunate. I was just discussing this with another creative writing instructor yesterday, what the dampening effect that that kind of feedback has on students. I had a, a creative writing director who used to introduce himself with to every new student cohort uh, during the faculty introductions by saying, I don't read horror because it makes me laugh. And I would just die a little bit inside for these students. So that's real. And I'm, I'm actually very sorry you went through that because you honestly are the most, you were the first writer I ever met who was my own age, who was actually a professional level writer. You had already published a short story before you ever came to Northwestern. And you, you're you're a, you're a great writer, and I'm just glad that you that you have your books, and I'm glad that you're working on some new stuff, which we can talk about as much as you want to later. But but thank you for that, and thank you for everything you gave me as a young artist. So similarly, my first story was sold, and then the magazine went through an editor change, and I got the rights reverted. So yes, I got into Northwestern because I sold a short story to Amazing Science Fiction. But at the time, it was going through an editor shift, and I got the rights reverted back to me. So it never actually saw the light of day as a print publication. Mm. That came in 1994 to Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction. And the gestation of that story was funny because I had just gotten rejected by Kristen Rush at the time, who was the editor. And, and she didn't like a story that I had spent a lot of time on. And I was really frustrated by that. So I remember sitting down that evening and cranking out a 4,000 word short story, which became With or Without You, sent it off the next day and just thought, what the hell? And 
about a month later, I get a check in the mail saying we want to publish your story. And I'm just like, but the problem you wrote with that, that in a day, I wrote that in a day. And the problem was having succeeded. I spent the next several years trying to figure out what it was that I did. How did I do that? How did I construct that narrative? How did I do that story? And I went to Clarion West with that question. I was I was asking each of the instructors there. It's like, help me deconstruct the story that I published because I don't understand what I did. How can I replicate it? Because well, you can have success once, you. but how do you replicate it? Did right. you ever did you try to write another four thousand word story in a day? Not in a day. Yeah, I did try to write. What you more. did was you took your brakes off. Yes, you didn't think about it. You were feeling it. You did. You were. You were. Your fingers were moving so fast. You didn't have a time to, to to put the brakes on with your brain. And the structure came from what you understood organically about story. It was. It wasn't what you thought about consciously. It's what you already knew. It's what you had at unconscious competence, and you slowed yourself down by trying to analyze it. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe so. But interestingly enough, tell everybody what your story is about, because it, it speaks so much to what's happening right now in the entertainment industry. So around that time, I believe Natalie Wood died while making a film. And there was a bit of controversy about I'm that. Because I'm sorry. Brainstorm. Oh, okay, Mr. And and what they did was they wanted to finish the film, so they took outtakes of her, they took clips of her, and they edited it in. They didn't digitally morph it in any way, if I remember correctly. It was pretty clean. It was just edits. And they they salvaged the film somehow and they pushed it out. And I got to thinking, well, what if we bring in AI? What if we bring in technology? So with or without you 
the producer's wife dies while making a film. He decides he's going to push it through because he wants her to win a Golden Globe or something, he wants her to be recognized for her career. And so our protagonist joins the production because he's hungry. He wants to work in Hollywood. And he starts to realize that this isn't right. In fact, the performance is actually coming out better than the woman was in real life. And so he really thinks this is wrong. And so it ends with a line, something along the lines of reality. It might not be perfect, but I like it that way. He, he steps back from it and realizes that that's just not what he wants to do. It's not the future he wants, but boy, right. does it sound like it's the future that studios want, <laughs> or at least they're not willing to commit to human actors in in favor in favor of human actors instead of AI. And I know there are a million other things that we can talk about. And and the kind of security, the work you do, the technological work you do, isn't necessarily specializing in AI, but I know you have thoughts about it. A lot of writers are scared. Actors are scared. How scared should we be? How does this look from your perspective as someone who is an observer of technology I, and a writer? Yes. The previous episode, I, I have to agree with Steve. It is inevitable. And what we're seeing today is baby steps toward of the real thing. We we don't really have, in my opinion, the intelligence behind what we're calling AI. Ted Chang, when he wrote in The New Yorker, it's just basically doing word replacement. And that's where we are today. It's language learning models. And in terms of acting, you know, we've got Dolly that can take images and then synthesize from all these images. Generative AI can create a new image, but it's not. It's just moving pieces around, pixels around, and so forth. There's no intelligence behind it. So when we get to that point, it's going to be a problem. I, I, I agree that there is concern and we need to stop today and really, really think about like, do we want that? If you sell your voice in perpetuity, to Steve's point, your, your estate's going to benefit from that. Every time your voice is used, you'll get some sort of residual off of that. That's great. But if you're still alive and you sell your voice, what are you doing for the rest of your life? You know? It's, right. It's, I mean, you know, to me, the real, the concern is not that people will sign their likenesses away because any decent lawyer will stop you from doing that in a way that will hurt you. My concern is that, great actors at the end of their careers. I mean, let's say Bruce Willis, you know, mm -hmm. a great star, sells his likeness. And if they learn how to do it, then you get a group of maybe six people who are doing different aspects. It's like treating that image in his voice like puppeteers, basically creating, right. you know, or, or Beanie and Cecil or, or Bugs Bunny in that sense. And that, that the ability to cast Bruce Willis in Die Hard 9 <laughs> mean that another other act another actor does not get that star possibility that up until this time old actors have always risen and fallen and right now you have a situation where that's going to change and there's probably nothing that can be done about that because you probably can't stop somebody from selling their own image if that's what they really want to do and it may not hurt them but how many times can that happen before it starts creating problems for the people trying to rise up. And I, I think that that is, that's a real thing. Yeah. And, yeah. And I agree. And what's what you see in Indiana Jones and what you see in um, 
Captain Marvel, it's the actors acting, but then post-production aging them backwards in time so that they appear younger, but they still acted. They were still physically on stage. They were still performing. It was them. It's when you get to the point where you've sold your image and your image is being used in ways that maybe you did not want, that poses like a whole new set of questions. Let me ask you this, Rob, just sort of as an observer of this, it seems to me because maybe it's because writers are storytellers and social media has helped us amplify our message better than the last time there was a writer's strike. But it just seems to me that the studios and and they look like supervillains here. Like, well, of course, no writer or actor in their right mind would sign this document. Just kidding. You know what I mean? But instead, it shut everything down. They're willing to face a strike over it. Are they that invested in the idea of replacing actors and writers? Or is it just that they want all of the cards in their hands? Or what do you think is going on with them? Well, it's it's a cost saving mm. to do digital work, but I'm kind of all over the map on this. I, sorry, but Steve mentioned something in the previous uh, podcast, which I think is worth bringing into this uh, conversation. And that sure. AIs are capable of producing like hacked TV today, and we could carry that over to the actors as well. They could produce an episode of a TV show, perhaps real soon and it would it would pass but here's the difference if you look at the two dune movies for example um there's a big difference the original dune was just like how do we wrap our brain around this big project and we produce this movie and whatever and david lynch gave us that in the 80s fine Mm -hmm. but then we have this new version of dune and it's lush it's sensual It, it it has an audio track it has outstanding cinematography it's just like it's it's an immersive event and you really invest yourself in Paul Atreides story because of that and I think that's going to be the difference I think AI generated work is going to be not cartoonish maybe a level above cartoonish but we're always going to be able to tell when a real human being is directing something producing something acting and writing something it's going to stand out it's going to differentiate itself and so maybe this is a short-term play by the studios they think i'm going to save money today but over time it's not going to be memorable it's not going to work i question whether or not that's true i think Uh that that just as computers have passed what we thought was our test for intelligence which the turing test they've long since passed that I and no one there's no test for computer intelligence that the average person can pass and the computers can't right now that I know of nothing objective anymore and I think that human creativity and human mentation computers aren't going to be able to think the way we do because they're not organic they're going to do it a different way but any objectively measured benchmark of that process I think they're going to get it and I think that there's a finite number of those benchmarks they can get like, for instance, if I ask them, generate me 12 ideas for James Bond movies, okay? And they do. And about three of those ideas, not bad. I mean, it's a chat GPT. We'll do that in five seconds. If you took those and said, now break this idea down into a three-act structure. 
And then now break this down into sequences. Now break this down into scenes. Now break this down. There's a, a limit to how much granularity you can get before you'd come up with something that the average person in the audience would say, oh, I didn't realize that was computer. And you I know, we're going to get that far. And I think that it's frightening to us to realize that that could happen and that is happening from my from my point of view. So for me, the primary question is going is going to be not will it happen, but when it happens, what do we do and how are we going to you know, how is this going to affect society when it happens? It doesn't have to destroy the industry or society or anything else. But I do think that the conversation now is, how are we going to handle this? You know, I agree with both of you, if that's possible. I do think that both, we will be able to tell a difference or people with discerning tastes will be able to tell a difference. And I think executives will bank on the fact that a lot of viewers do not have discerning tastes. So just in the way that, like, for instance, shows, I mean, I hate to say it, but, you know, like Naked and Afraid, which, of course, I watched the whole run and alone were meant as a way to replace scripted programming and dumb down the thought and programming on these networks there. I think there will just be a general dumbing down of what passes as a television episode or what passes as a film when it begins to rely more on AI generation is that but but to your point what do we do I mean we're striking and I I know we're going to be triumphant there there I don't even understand what the delay is they have no choice they need actors still as much as they dream that they can replace actors and writers with AI it ain't true just yet you know, so you know, I think that the, the the most important thing that's going to happen here, the one thing that's going to be clear, is movies and television shows will start saying, you know, we not created with AI, and human mm-hmm. beings who want to see human beings will watch that the same way that they promote this Tom Cruise's stunts. This is not, you know, this is actually Tom Cruise. It, millions, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of free publicity because yeah. of the fact that we make that connection human to human. And I think that that's primarily going to be the thing. It's, it will be a selling point by itself, created with real human beings, not AI, that people will then vote with their tickets for mm-hmm. what they want and how they want the world to be in that sense. And I, I think that that is going to be one of the solutions that simply allow people to make a choice. I think you're right. I think it will exist in parallel. I'm thinking back to Donna just mentioned, you know, reality TV was a substitute for a previous writer's strike when they were looking for non-scripted shows to fill the airs. And we have those shows today coinciding with scripted television. And people are, to your point, Steve, voting with where they uh, turn their attention. Like, do we need another season of Survivor? You know, or do we want another season of like Beef or something like that? So, right. Yeah. Right. And that, yeah. that difference will always show. It's just, you know, with with libraries being deleted. In fact, I want to get a Blu-ray of our horror noir movie, Steve. We wrote two episodes of the horror noir anthology, Black Horror Anthology that Shudder put out. And when I read posts on social media from writers saying, oh, yeah, I wrote the sh- two shows for Disney Plus, they've already pulled the shows can't find them. We've already had that experience with a Marvel project that we did for Serial Box, now Realm. They just pulled it. 
So it doesn't exist. I think I saw a bootleg copy on YouTube. So I want to get a copy. But but yeah, I mean, the fight over residuals becomes moot when the library has been completely, you know, gutted. Yeah, well, that- the real question is about what the motivations are to do that. And I I think that those are the kinds of things that people need to sit at the table and talk about. You know, why are we why are we going to make this available or not? What were you going to say, Rob? Well, the the fight over residuals, I think, is a valid fight. It's ridiculous that you can work on a movie. John Cusack had the the Twitter thread where he said, you know, I was in this famous movie and yet the studio declared it lost $400 million. And so, you know, my residuals are accordingly marked down for that. And yet everybody knows the movie. And people have seen it. So, you know, how can that be? There's this perception that writers and and actors make a ton of money. And the reality is, is that they're getting residual checks that have, well, decimal zero one after Mm -hmm. it. And that's your residual for the year. It's like, how can that be? So... Yeah, it's interesting times. And I, I'm really scared by what you said in the last podcast, Steve, about whole e-zines that have basically declared their AI writing only? What? No, the I didn't say that. Oh, I thought you said that. No, no, no. There are e-zines that are, are closing down because their slush pile is is crammed with AI stuff. Oh, mm. I see. Okay, thank goodness. They're having to kind of reevaluate what it is that they're doing. You know, trying to trying to 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 figure this out. And I think that eighteen months ago, this wasn't a conversation. Just eighteen, just... 18 months. This the the conversation about AI being able to write, you know, readable fiction was not a thing except in science fiction. There is no way to predict what 18 years from now is going to look like. You know, so I think that that the best, com- like I said, the, the best conversation is what does it mean when it happens? Mm. Because it will be here and a plenty of people will be saying, no, it's not. I think that, you know, we've moved the goalposts so far that it's very clear that there will never be a point at which people agree Everybody agrees that this has happened. And if it's a negative thing, we'll be in the midst of the negative and people still be saying water ain't wet. So (laughs) it is an opportunity on the wings of danger in that sense. Is it a situation where we can just excellence ourselves into survival as as artists standing above and beyond? Is that our, our only our best defense? Rob, do you have any thoughts on that? I do. I do. Because in in film school, we talked about like the advent of television and how everybody saw it as the doom of radio. And that didn't happen. Or when VC, you know, the videotapes came out and, and DVDs came out, it was like that's the, the end of theatrical releases or streaming. When that came out, that's the end of theatrical releases. It's just it's further splitting the pie. And to your point. It's like you're going to differentiate yourself by excellence. Maybe it's pushing us as artists to be more creative because we can stay ahead of the AI because we have that human experience on our side. You know, I think that that they don't have the AI. Computers are going to be scraping every book, every article, everything in order to be able to synthesize human experience in just the same way that human beings 
can write about the experience of the pe people and cultures they've never been to the point that that culture, you know, will say, oh, this is a good representation of us. Hey, I'll get to that point. I think that th those of us, those who are in the top 20% in terms of quality, if you can, if you can quantify something like this, will probably not have any problems. But I think that we can strategize our way out of this. You know, mm -hmm. we can, we can ask ourselves what's happening here and like i said even if genuine human beings created human being created art is a boutique specialty even if that's true that's still a market yes it's still it's still plenty of market you know and 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 the fact is that 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 might be if that's all there is that would be enough for people who are trying to make a living doing something that they love I am if if the if the majority of the population is willing to spend their money listening to what machines think about what people are, then that's that's a decision that our culture has made. That's a decision that human beings have made. I'm not worried about that. Yeah, that's so that's such an ugly, ugly scenario. That's <laughs> like that's like asking what 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 if, what if sex robots, you know, will they replace real human intimacy? For oh, some, immediately yes. they would, yes. Yeah, for, for some people, <laughs> absolutely that's true. And those people will get outbred by those who know prefer actual human beings. I think that there will be downsides to, to so, go for the imitation. So let me introduce a, a monkey wrench into this whole scenario. Jack McDivitt is a science fiction writer that I, I read. Uh, I think his his physics is very spot on, but he is space opera. And one of the things he does in this far future is he talks about them watching a hollow of an entertainment piece and inserting themselves into the story. Yeah. Now, that is another possibility that actors need to be worried about is that their role could be assumed by someone who pays to have their likeness and their image as the character in The Wizard of Oz or whatever they're watching. And I don't think that that is the same type of storytelling that human beings really want. It may be a niche, it may be a one-off thing, but I don't see that gaining a lot of traction because it's it's kind of turning it on its head. You read a story to experience somebody else going right. through stuff. I, mm -hmm. I frequently turn on the TV at the end of a hard day and I say, I want to see someone else have a bad oh, day no. so no. that I can, you know see how they overcame that or, or exactly that. truth to that exactly you know, like said, it's the the market is going to split there this is a new option that is existing and just like movies did not make stage obsolete right live performances are still are still a real thing so if we as human beings enjoy seeing and experiencing what other human beings do and that is separate from the question of an image that is produced by non-humans. The question of what percentage of the audience might go over there, that's hard to say. We're certainly going to find out. But I think that that for our lifetimes, aiming at being in the top 20%, well, first, get out of the bottom 20%. You know, that, that's, that's, you know, that will probably be enough. And then secondly, look into questions of of marketing and distribution and sales because if the big studios are falling apart right now because the actors and the writers you know are doing something before it gets to the point that we can be replaced and now is the time to take an action mm -hmm. not after 
Can't mm-hmm. do this is you know it's it, you can always tell who's on the other side of the issue because they're saying wait 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 it's too soon and then they say wait you know forget it it's too late there's never a, a, a great time to talk about this I see that this is an opportunity for the small filmmakers the small oh yeah a twenty four for example I didn't realize a twenty four is is an independent studio they're not a part of strike so. I think SAG is is either about to or has already started giving A24 permission to go ahead with some productions, which is an exciting thing. Like the rise of the indie filmmaker, the rise of the web series. If we could get serious behind that, that's what needed to happen in the first place. And so it's in that sense, AI is going to be a tool. It's going to be an incredibly powerful and a transformative tool. But for our lifetimes, I think that we can see opportunity. You know, ultimately, I kind of think that we have created a tool that will free us from the need to work. And we're about to find out what is it really to be a human being. And those of us who are afraid of that question are going to be afraid of this. But those who th- who basically think that human beings are something wonderful will not be afraid of this. Mm-hmm. You know, this is just we finally created a tool that could help us leverage every aspect of what we are. Interesting. If you look at the the studio system from like the 30s and the 40s, they locked down everything. They had the writers, they had the actors, they were all under contract. You couldn't jump from studio to studio. That broke down. You started to see the technology making it easier for independents to film things. I know it was exciting when Robert Rodriguez made his film with credit cards. It was like, you can do that? That's really awesome. Mm-hmm. So this this independent theme is is I think very important here when we're talking about the strike that's going on. It's like they can't control everything. And to T to Nari's point, you know, A24 is an example of 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 a successful independent studio that's out there. And there'll be others that are independent in, in different ways because we have the technology, as you said, the tools to make things look really well, really you know, edited really well. I'm thinking of how Adobe has just added um, generative AI to its products. And so in Premiere Pro, it can it can do some of the tedious editing of ums and whatever and, mm-hmm. and clean up your your audio track, which is great. It's liberating because then I as an artist can go and do other things. I don't have to do those tedious tasks. So AI performs that function very, very well, but we need to sort of make some distinctions as to that's an AI function and this is a purely creative human function over here. You know, Absolutely agreed. I, I think that uh, if relatively young old fogies as we are uh, can look at this and see the potentials, the kids growing up with it will see things that we have not even dreamed of, you know, and so the kids will work it out in that sense because it's their world. And they're going to see that threat. You know, the, the real question is, how do I live a life of joy and meaning? And this is this is a, a different door into a different world. It's going to be I, I'm enjoying watching how much change there is happening right now. And not to minimize your point, honey, because I agree with that. The kids are the future, too. But they're going to be creating like from their underground bunkers because they can't come out into the sun. But anyway, well, that's a whole different topic, <laughs> Rob. Yeah, you know, uh, I just want to shift a little bit because I didn't read your whole bio, but as someone who knew you when we were basically kids and <laughs> was an early fan of, of of your writing, you know, with that, with or without you, I thought that was a brilliant story. 
even before I realized it was going to be true, you know, <laughs> but, but you've done so many things. I mean, you've been an award-winning journalist, more than a dozen years uh, of experience in major news organizations. You've done editing. You, 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 you're uh, an expert on computer security, criminal hacking, incident response. It's like, whoa, this guy. But I'm also so excited that you are working on your fiction. You know, this is something that I that I'm really, really wanting for you, and I'm so happy about it. And I just wanted to sort of ask you after spending so much time immersed in the world of tech and immersed in the world of nonfiction, how are you crafting your life to make room for for your your creative work? Yeah. So, well, I make time on the weekends, basically. I mean, I I spend my week doing my day job and doing my two podcasts. And then I I do covet my time in, in Saturday mornings, Sunday mornings, working on my uh, fiction project. And uh, I have to say it was, it was a, a zoom call that I was on with Steve and you and Steve said, get a date. And, and you got me to commit to a date, which is December 31st, 2023, that I'm going to finish a manuscript and, uh, you know, a draft. Um, I'm happy to say that I feel that the outline is, is fairly solid right now. I feel that the beats resonate to to anyone listening I, I i found save the cat writes a novel to be at first oh no i'm not going to do this and then i'm like no wait there's some some truth to that but mm. i have to go back to what my advisor at northwestern Stuart kaminsky told me which was you can compare two films or three films or whatever and you can find commonalities in all of them and he literally constructed authorship classes where we would take a hack and put it up against somebody big, like Bergman up against Sergio Leone. And there's like, how can you compare these two? But you can. And so that was a valuable tool that I took from, from college. And so I've been able to look at, say, Marvel movies and understand like what are the what are the beats in that? How are the transitions made? They're all pretty similar and they they don't necessarily follow, you know, whether it's Robert McKee you know, or anybody else out there. But they do have, for me, a pattern. And because I'm the one telling the story, I feel like that is my pattern. And that is how I will construct my stories going forward. So we'll see. We'll see at the end of this year if I'm successful in that. I love everything you just said. Stuart Comiskey was not my advisor, but I did hear a speech by him. And I asked a question. And my question was, what's the best way to break into screenwriting? And he said, write a novel, which was life-changing advice. I mean, it's the long way around. Okay. This is like many, many years later, but I'm so glad that that he gave you that. I'm so glad you got that deadline advice for Steve because he whipped me into shape with getting the reformatory finished. But I love the outlining thing too. Have you always been an outliner of fiction? Yes. Okay. Great. Yes. Why do you like so outlining? when I read a novel? Mm-hmm. Here, here's the thing, actually. It's not just when you read a novel. It's like, think back on a novel that resonates with you. Like years later, you still remember the story. Why? That's a story that, for whatever reason, harkens memories within you. It, it's personal. So go and outline that story. Go back to that book. And it may not be how you remembered it. But nonetheless, there's something there. So start with that and then find another book that resonated with you and another book and another book. And then look at the three or four books that you've outlined and say, hey, there's some commonalities here. 
oh, the catalyst is always this. And oh, you know, the, the opposing character is, is feeling this way or represents big government or whatever. It's like there are themes that can come out of that that are uniquely yours. So that is the advice that I would share. I am literally crying right now. I'm just so excited and so happy for you. And, and I cannot wait to see whatever you want to show me, if it's the beat outline, whatever, just know I'm here. Cause I owe you big. I owe you big. <laughs> now you said you were reading Steve. You probably knew about Stephen Barnes before I did then. I did. What um, was your first so- exposure to the great Stephen Barnes? The Stephen Barnes. <laughs> so at an early age, I started out with Isaac Osmov, of course. And then I gravitated into Arthur C. Clarke. And then I got, hooked into Larry Niven Mm. and that was my entree into Mr. Barnes great well we're still in touch with Larry and Steve sees him frequently actually working on a project with him right now Uh, he's he's semi-retired but uh, we still play yeah neutron star like all his stories that he wrote just resonated with me they they were just memorable they they worked so yeah when you introduced me and you said you were dating somebody and I walked in the room and there's Steve Barnes. I was just floored. I was like, (laughs) that is so funny. But I also have to share, I also have to share since this is about lifestyle and whatever. T, when when we were both single and trying to figure out and we were kind of like having these relationships that weren't going anywhere, you said to me over the phone, you were like, visualize who you want to meet. Write down qualities, like five things that you want in an individual. And by writing them down, they will manifest. And I was like, oh, no, no, no. And then you met Steve. And exactly. that was the second thing that burst for me. Because in college, I was famous for saying I would never marry a writer. Mm. I was going to marry an accountant. I was going to marry somebody who could support me while I did That would have been smarter. <laughs> no, 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 I'm no. I'm kidding. No. I'm kidding. I'm so happy that you two worked out because then I met Lori and she's a writer and it's like the two of us have been successful and happy and and we can share our worlds because we understand that world. You know, we both published, we both had agents. It's like, you know, we we understand this shortcut in, in conversations because we don't have to explain to the other party. It's like, well, you wouldn't understand generally accounting principles, but here they are. Yes. <laughs> right. Or the, or the vacant stare, you know, or you, right. you just, that is just so important to me personally, being married to a writer is someone who gets the vacant stare, but also do you two bounce ideas off of each other? Yes. That's priceless. That's worth not having like the, the accountant in the relationship. <laughs> But having said that, you know, I took a mainstream job and Lori's taken a mainstream job as well. We're not fully supporting ourselves with the writing. Um, right, 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 right. You guys have different paths as well. You know, it's, yes. it's I teach at um, UCLA and yeah. yeah. Well, that's just great. I'm I'm so glad. Is there anything that you want to share? You have a new podcast. Tell us about the podcast and promote the heck out of them so that people know where to find you. So the Hacker Mine is something I do for my job. It's sponsored by the company I work for, For All Secure. And basically what I'm trying to do is introduce people to hackers that I know. The word hacker doesn't mean anything bad. It means to take something apart. 
So when I talk about hackers, I'm talking about researchers. I'm talking about people that look at vulnerabilities and make life better by fixing those vulnerabilities, particularly when they're in critical infrastructure and, and things like that. So every week I, or every two weeks, rather, I have guests on the show who are doing very interesting research along those lines. I don't get into the criminal hackers. That's for other shows to talk about. Plenty of that out there in the world. I just got tired of seeing like, Mr. Robot and seeing that, you know, someone who is challenged for various reasons in their life has to be the hacker. It's like, no, I know a lot of people that have ordinary regular lives who are hackers and I, I sort of want to challenge our expectations. So that said, I created my own podcast last year to focus on the Internet of Things. My first book, When Gadgets Betray Us, talks about the Internet of Things. I think that anything that we're connecting to the Internet we need to be careful with. We've already seen examples of people hacking into, you know, surveillance cameras, for example, mm -hmm. or ring. And and it's it's not great. And we need to take greater care with that. So that podcast, I have guests that talk about like hacking EV stations, for example, with our electric vehicles. You know, those stations can be hacked, hacking medical devices. Ah. That's the subject area. Or taking down the electrical grid was one of the episodes where we dismissed the idea that, you know, foreign terrorists could easily take down the electrical grid in the United States. No, that's not the way it's going to work. But there are some rational discussions that need to be had around our current state of electrical grid. So those are two very different shows that I do, and it keeps me occupied. Every two weeks, I commit to each show. So that's my SLA, and I alternate. So I'm doing about 50 shows a, a year at what? this point, which is a bit crazy. But Well, your your, your podcast, uh, the one I listened to, sounded great. I was like, oh, he's using clips, and, and it's got high production values. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, excuse me, Robert Ramosi. It's just, I... I'm just been so excited to have you on the podcast. I was as excited to have Craig Shimon on, who was someone else who was in our dorm with us, who wrote a book about Jim Henson's early uh, career. And I was like, oh my God, he's such an expert. He's a historian. And I feel the same way about you. It's like, oh, wow, you're such a, you're an expert. <laughs> I just remember us as these 19 year old, 20 year old kids having a great time doing radio in the basement of our dorm and, and, basically hibernating from the rest of the campus, just enjoying meeting people we connected with on the deepest level we ever had. That's just, for me, that was the truth of it. I had never met so many other people who wanted to be artists, who wanted to be writers, where we could live together and grow together. And I'm so excited to have had you on. So Steve, did you have any parting words? You know, the primary thing is, do you think that our history starting from this moment and going back into the past, where do you believe that it's going? Those questions are one of the one of the three most important ones that create science fiction, certainly. You know, what if, if only under this goes on? I think that we need people who have a positive sense of it, a negative sense of it, but ultimately I think it really comes down to what you think human beings are. You know, there's only those two questions. What is true and who are we? So when you talk about hackers as people who take things apart and put them back together again, you're removing some of the negative from that concept and allowing people to embrace that from a, a position that says, oh, this could be a positive thing. You know, and it, it could very well be that in a world of AI, it's going to be hackers who save the world. Who knows? <laughs> That's for sure. It's a great story. Anyway, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for inviting so me.
So glad you, know, you were here. We like to always, you know, comment that that all of our approaches to writing and looking at your career is something that you can strategize about relate to our life writing, you know, life writing premium program, the program that we do where, you know, every month, every week, we give you assignments and perspectives, you know, for an entire year. And you can find out more about that at lifewritingpremium.com. As the announcer with the deep, deep voice will remind you during the outro also, but don't forget to check it out. And thank you so much to Robert Vermosi for being with us on the show. You all go out and make yourselves the hero or heroine of your own story. The hero in the adventure of your lifetime. Bye-bye, everybody. You've been listening to the Life Writing Podcast. Join us next time for more conversations about creating the project of your dreams. For more information, go to lifewritingpremium.com and get ready to write for your life.